Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in which I get the opportunity to talk at greater length to people who might be guests on my radio show, The Last Word, or who might not, to talk about their lives, their interesting lives, to talk about interesting issues that are important, hopefully, to you, the listener. And that's why I picked today's guest, who has joined me in the kitchen at my home, for a lengthy discussion about the housing crisis that we face in this country. He may not be a particularly well-known individual to you, but he holds a very important position as the Chief Executive of the Land Development Agency. He'll explain a little bit about what that is and what its role is in trying to solve the nation's housing crisis when we hear from him. And he's an interesting backstory as well, his role in NAMA and his belief in the importance of public service as something that people should do and why that can be more important to the earning of money as many people in the property industry perhaps are a little bit obsessed with. Anyway, our guest today on this edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper is the Chief Executive of the Land Development Agency, John Coleman. John, the reason that I've asked you to join me here at my kitchen table today to do this interview is because housing is, for so many people, the biggest issue, I think, facing them, particularly for younger generations who not only are wondering if they're ever going to be able to afford to buy a house, are now wondering if they're going to be able to afford to rent a house or apartment to actually live in. So what in this land development agency doing to actually address that? You're right, Matt. And look, th- thanks for having me. Firstly, it's it's uh, it's great to be on the the podcast. But uh, you're you're absolutely correct. It's it's our possibly our biggest societal issue, isn't it? Like shelter uh, is a, is a fundamental need, and uh, um, so that's really become crammed because of affordability issues in particular and availability issues indeed uh, over the past number of years. So the Land Development Agency and what, what that's trying to do to alleviate it um, is to try and bring in a new affordability tenure, a new affordability sector in the country, which hadn't existed up until now, um, and trying to target those kind of people in the middle that don't qualify for social housing but can't afford the private housing market either, and that's a, that's a growing band of people. Um, I mean, when we looked at who didn't qualify for social, but would struggle to pay based on their incomes. Private sector rents, say, for instance, um, probably last analysed that property about a, a year ago. Uh, and I'd say we need to rerun those numbers now because that band, those middle deciles of income have probably broadened. So we think it's about the middle three and a half deciles are, are particularly tightly squeezed. Explain to me, what, what are those deciles? What sort of income ranges are we talking about? Because I was even today reading about uh, buy to rent, or sorry, yeah, the, the apartments that are available from the institutional landlords, that there are people on salaries of 80, 85,000 euro who aren't able to afford the rents there. But that's it. And uh, so if, you, if, you, if you're on, roughly speaking, it depends on your household composition, but if you're on about 45,000 gross, you should qualify for social housing, depending on your composition, depending where it is. Differs slightly, but in and around you should qualify for better or for worse. And of course, there's a social housing shortage as well. Uh, and if you, 
extrapolate that about one third of someone's net income is what they can afford to pay on their housing cost. So it's 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 not an exact science, but as a rule of thumb, it's broadly accepted. Um, we think that uh, those really in need are stretching all the way up to about 80, 85,000 in terms of who would be struggling to pay on the market if you were to go out today uh, to, to, to rent somewhere. So that, that's who we're targeting with our affordable homes. That but 85,000 is a significant amount of money. I mean, maybe a couple, if both of them are in good income jobs, can get to 85,000. But what about the single person? That's it. And uh, we're trying to cover quite a broad range. So at the lower end, someone on 45,000 a household income or, or even a single person on that um, would uh, take home um, about 3,300 3, a month. So they should be able to afford about 1,000 a month, 1,100 uh, on their rent. Uh, and we've seen today that the average from the DAFT report actually out this morning um, from uh, Ronan Lyons uh, that uh, the average rent in Dublin asking is now two grand a month. And um, so there's a big, big gap uh, between those that can afford that. Even at 75,000, say, the the affordability level should be around 1,500 a month, 1,540. So that gap is just widening and widening, unfortunately, at the moment. So that's why we need these affordable homes. So what's the Land Development Agency's role in that? So we've been tasked with opening up state land in particular, but it doesn't have to be just state land. Um, it could be other lands as well. Um, and to make those available for affordable homes and to translate them into affordable homes. The way we're doing that, there's no magic wand. I mean, they cost us the same roughly as the private sector to build them. Um, but the way we're doing it is we're essentially getting the land at very low cost or nominal cost from the state, close enough to nil. So you don't have that input cost into producing the home. We'd also take a very long-term view on rent setting as well. We want to, it's called cost rental, which, you know, the, the, it's in the name. It covers the cost of operation. So we would just try so to... So does it cover the cost of the actual building? It does, yeah. The financing of it, the, the, the building of it, the construction costs and the operational costs on an ongoing basis. That's the, the idea behind it. And um, so we wouldn't have land as an input cost into that, which helps bring down levels to a more affordable level. Okay, but a couple of things on the land. I mean, how much a part of the price of an apartment or a house is down to the land? It, it depends on, on the location. Um, it could be 100,000 or more in per some unit. locations per unit. Um, other areas, it might be 25,000, 30,000. That's only part of it. We're also taking a, a very, uh, we, we, if you had an open market private rental sector operator uh, renting out homes, they'd look for a four or five percent return, probably in and around that uh, on, their, on their income. And uh, we would be looking for much, much lower levels of return than that as well. Much more akin to kind of quasi housing association type entities in, across Europe uh, rather than uh, some of the PRS funds that would operate here. Okay, but come back to me as well about the land that you're getting. I mean, is the state surrendering or gift, gifting or granting all of the land for free? Because it strikes me that a lot of, say, commercial state enterprises might say, well, we have need for that land. I know you're doing a lot of work, for example, with CIE. 
But CI might say, well, we could develop that land ourselves, make as much money out of it to pay for the trains or the buses or whatever that they're required to make capital investment on. So is the state necessarily always willing or eager to hand over its land? Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a conundrum. Like, state companies have assets that they utilise, uh, be it gaining an income from them or selling them for their own operational purposes. And we need, like CIE, we need bus and train services. Um, and as well as housing services. So there's a trade-off. Um, we, it, it's arranged two ways. So for, land, for agencies that are controlled directly by the state, say for instance the HSE, um, the land would transfer at a, a very low value. Um, for land that's to transfer from commercial state companies, the likes of CIE and, and others, uh, the government would have to make a case-by-case decision on each of those. And essentially what it boils down to is what percentage of affordable housing do we want on those pieces of land? And the higher the percentage, the lower the value of the land. So essentially if it's 100%, the land is only worth nominal value. If it's if it's uh, 50%, it's probably 50% of its open market value, roughly speaking. So those have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis by the government as they come up. Most of the lands that we've tapped to date have been from non-commercials, uh, but you're correct. We will have to grasp the nettle on the commercial stuff, uh, uh, and we're in discussions with a number of commercial bodies about those at the moment. But I think ultimately, we still need to run those commercial companies as well. So it'll be a question for government as to priorities and ability to fund those with other sources other than their land. There's no shortage of land in this country, though, is there? I, only recently, I was flying into the country, and it was a beautiful sunny day without any cloud. And the flight coming into Dublin took the long route around across the bay and then out as far as Kildare and swinging back around into North Dublin. And you look down and you see there's loads of green space and there's also loads of what you might call brown space, an awful lot of stuff that needs to be perhaps cleared and redeveloped. So given that we have no shortage of land, why is it so expensive? Yeah, the... the I guess it's just market forces. And like if you're a private rental sector operator, so you work out your costs of delivery on one level, you work out your rents on, on another level. And when you have rents still increasing at 10, 12%, and up until recently, costs hadn't been increasing to the same degree. Obviously, of late, yes, that's a much bigger issue. But it does leave a lot of room uh, for land prices at the end. And that's probably what's happened. Like land, when I worked at my previous employer in AMA, you couldn't give away land in 2012 as a liability. And 10 short years later, uh, it's become hugely valuable. That's the nature of land. It's massively volatile because if the price of a house goes up uh, 1x, the price of land can go up uh, 4x. It's of, the, of that nature. So um, it's, it's, yeah, that, it's just a very volatile asset. Just actually, just jumping a little bit back, so if you were in NAMA, you might be able to answer this question for me. How many ghost estates were actually demolished, which now, in retrospect, if they've been kept, could have provided housing that we needed? Um, probably not so many as you'd think. Um, there was an initiative in NAMA, um, it was an acronym called NARPS, but essentially what it focused on was getting those ghost estates and finishing them off and making them available as, as social housing. So quite, quite a lot of them um, 
were uh, remediated or finished out and ended up in this vehicle in Arps and are currently rented out to approved housing bodies as social housing. I think there's about 1,400 units in that uh, vehicle at the moment. So um, pretty early on, it was recognised that there was an opportunity to do something there with those rather than just have them demolished and uh, bring them into use. So the majority of them have been remediated because you still see stuff going up on social media some estates i've seen in cork for example which seem to be vacant and empty i mean is there still housing out there that could be put to use that hasn't been i think market forecasts market forces have probably made those viable to a degree uh, and uh, brought a lot of those forward there might be odds and sods that are still out there that for whatever reason uh, haven't moved on it could be under the control of a creditor, maybe not NAMA anymore, but a bank or the builder could have its own difficulties. But I wouldn't say it's widespread uh, anymore. Uh, a lot of them would have moved on one way or the other. But yet recently you said something very interesting because, and we'll get back to the use of state land, but I think it surprised maybe some people to see that the Land Development Agency was involved in providing finance to private sector developers to finish out estates or to use the planning permission which they had, which they haven't activated. Tell us what the thinking is behind that. So uh, there are approximately um, schemes that could deliver 80,000 homes countrywide or about 40,000 in Dublin uh, for one reason or another haven't commenced. So that's where the state has given planning permission and they could be delivered, but for for various reasons they mightn't have, have moved on or commenced. And we were thinking, well, consented land, that's land with planning permission, is quite a difficult thing to get, especially now with judicial review and a lot of opposition to, to development. And that affects us just the same as anyone else. We have to go through the same planning process. So we said, well, we need to get at consented land to bring it into affordable housing. And we have some consented land and a growing amount of consented land as we go through planning processes, but not as enough to match our delivery ambition. So we looked at those situations where they hadn't moved on and said, what is it that we can bring to bear to make these happen? So it could be where a developer can't access. Finance is difficult to access still for developers. Um, the banks have long memories when it comes to, to this, and I don't blame them. They were heavily burned, obviously, 10 years ago. Um, but uh, we looked at those and said, if, if we can provide a guarantee on the exit, say, for a developer, it'll make their economic decision and ability to deliver that land much more viable. But not to just do it for the sake of delivery in general. Strategically, we're trying to create an affordable housing sector in the country. So couldn't we accelerate the creation of that by harnessing these uncommenced planning consents and bringing them into the affordable housing net? So that's the whole objective of, of this initiative, to get the, get the sites going, first of all, but also to achieve a dual benefit of having a new affordable housing sector in the country by doing that. So 80,000 potential units? That's correct, yeah, yeah, in and around that countrywide. How quickly? So we're, we're our initial, obviously it's very expensive to, to, to finance this and to underwrite this. Um, we have limited capital. Um, we've good amount of capital, but it is limited nonetheless. Uh, but we're targeting 5,000 uh, units over the next four years through this programme. And we're trying to do it in a sensible way, well located, um, where there's good demand for particularly rental accommodation, but also sales. 
so we're targeting uh, releasing about 5,000 of those units. But I think the, the important thing about this initiative as well is that we've had quite a run on housing for since 2014, 2015. We did nothing, obviously, from 2009 to 2015, roughly, which is why we're partially why we're in this hole we're in at the moment. There was, there was a black hole putting in housing delivery as a result of the financial crash. Um, but uh, so we've had a run for a number of years. Um, we tend to go in cycles. And you'd ask yourself the question, with the interest rate environment looking a bit more challenging uh, going forward, with costs, delivery costs, certainly looking more challenging, that we want to be very careful that we don't have another slump in delivery. And one of the core reasons for setting up the LDA was that we would smooth out those cycles, those boom-bust cycles that we're so prone to in this country over decades. So that if you imagine back in 2009, and this might not have been feasible, but if you had a state body like the LDA that no matter what was still building when every, everyone else wasn't, but was still building, and this is an, an extremist, but, but it's, it's a good way to frame it, or that it was able to work with those that had land, that were, had viable development platforms, and was able to work with those to bring those uh, lands into development as well. It might, we might not be in as bad a situation if you had an appropriately sized agency doing that work back in 2009 to 15. And I think to have that and to have that ability to do that as we go into future cycles is, is going to be important. I don't want to labour the point, but I do want to just clarify a couple of things in relation to that, because it sounds very interesting, the potential that you have there. That you, A lot of people have asked questions as to why it is that there are a lot of planning permissions in place that are not acted upon. And often the commentary is that this is land hoarding and that it is developers waiting until a later stage in the cycle where they think they can make even more profit. It strikes me at the moment that maybe we're near a peak again in pricing, that there's not much benefit to waiting much longer for a lot of these developers that the reason that they can't actually build is that they can't get the money to do so. So what you're offering to be is a guaranteed buyer, is it, at the end, and a guaranteed financier, or the fact that you're a guaranteed buyer, would that allow them to raise the finance from the banks? It's the latter at the moment, uh, Matt, but we, we would look at other situations going forward. I think what might be feasible would be to have a framework of delivery partners going forward that we could quickly open up situations for those that were capable and that had the land to deliver on. I think, I think that's, that's possible. Um, at the moment, it's just providing the guarantee at the end that we'd be there to take them and deliver them as uh, affordable purchase or affordable rental, cost rental uh, homes. Uh, but I think it is possible to come up with financing solutions to maybe negate the need for bank finance. And then how would you deal with people who would turn around immediately and say that that's a bailout for the builders? Um, yeah, look, I, I think to say that there, there's a bailout for builders would imply that there's some distress there that they need a bailout. No one's told me that builders are struggling. Okay, well then the let me put it a different way. A bonanza for developers that they get guaranteed their profits by the state. No, I think I think we mentioned that there's 80,000 uh, uncommenced um, worth of homes uh, on, on, on those uh, approvals for targeting around 5,000, we, we should be able to create good competitive tension. And I think the state as a, as, a, as a back end is going to be a lot more attractive as well, 
because again looking at the cycle that's ahead of us interest rates going out uh, increasing uh, people thinking that you know maybe I can get a better deal for my for my investment elsewhere in lower risk stuff if, if that comes to pass I, I think the state will be viewed as a, as a good partner and the demand for that from the industry would be higher than the supply that we can give so I think we'll be able to get good bidding tension between uh, partners. Some politicians seem to think that the state can solve all of our housing problems, can it? Well, it's going to be a big part of it. I mean, if you look at if you look at the targets for housing for all that are set out for the next 10 years in the, the government's housing strategy. So at the moment, give or take, the state accounts for 20-25% of all housing output. So that could be through AHBs working with developers to approved housing bodies uh, to deliver social housing. Uh, it could be from direct acquisitions by the state itself or direct development, which is a smaller part, but increasing um, with people like the Land Development Agency and councils themselves delivering directly. So 20, 25%. The Housing for All targets are about 30,000, uh, 33,000 units a, a year over 10 years on average. And around half of those are to be delivered as public housing. So that's social housing, uh, affordable purchase or cost rental. So it's already high at 20, 25%. That would be high by European norms as well. And we're talking about getting to 50%. So I don't think the state can be ever be a panacea. It needs a development industry. It needs house builders. Um, but it's got to be a big part of it for sure. What do you make then of the... Uh what are called by some the cuckoo funds, the institutional investors coming in and buying ready-made apartment blocks. Is that the type of thing that the country really needs? I think we, we need all sorts of, of housing. Um, the investment funds coming in and funding or providing the capability or the wherewithal for these to be built, the reality is... We've said as a country we're going to build more densely because of good reasons like maximizing infrastructure, intensity of usage, uh, climate change is a, is a huge factor. Um, and so we're building more densely. That sometimes, not all the time, but quite often means we're building apartments. And the days until some government initiatives have come along uh, more recently, but the, the days of developers spec building apartments for 100 blocks to show that when you have them completed in two and a half years time that 100 households will show up with the money that you think that they will uh, be able to buy them for mortgage approved and buy them off you individually when they're it's actually much more expensive to build an apartment than it is a house Th those days have passed and no one will spec build for sale uh, apartments anymore so you need some sort of an institutional player, be it the LDA, could be the LDA, or an approved housing body, or 
uh, some investment funds that uh, rent into the private sector. So, so they're needed, otherwise the, the development won't happen. Now, market forces have dictated that those funds can demand higher rents, but I think it just underlines the need then for these initiatives that have come in around cost rental and affordable rental to eat into some of that and to capture some of that and deliver it on an affordable basis to people. Yeah, because it, we were told that apartments are exceptionally expensive to build. So we can see the reality or the the need to have density for environmental reasons, to keep people near public transport, schools, other things. But is that benefit not lost by the fact that the apartments themselves become so expensive to build and then so expensive to either purchase or too expensive to purchase are very expensive to rent. Some of it, uh, it becomes more difficult, uh, all right? It's, it's essentially society is paying a higher price for this more sustainable form of development. And we have to look at ways to drive down that price. The prices are, I can tell you, they're, they're unsustainable. And uh, we're in the market ourselves at the moment. And... Um, obviously looking for, for builders and, and contractors to build out our schemes. And the prices are um, unsustainable. We will have spikes um, from time to time. Obviously there's a sense of force majeure out there at the moment. The Ukraine crisis, which has just compounded COVID and other supply chain related uh, factors. But um, yeah, I, I agree. I, we don't have the answer today, but maybe it's around design efficiency. Um, but. Uh, because again, some politicians are telling us uh, that some approved housing bodies have built far more cheaply, that you can do things for prices way lower than we keep reading about in the newspapers for every new development. Can it be done more cheaply? It, it depends. Like the, No, I, I would say generally speaking, the, the idea that someone can wave a magic wand and, and produce uh, homes or apartments uh, much cheaper than what has been put out there is, is not true. When you count all costs that are included, levies, um, land costs sometimes uh, that people have. Uh, and every site has abnormal issues, I can tell you. Uh, they shouldn't be called abnormal issues because they're normal, uh, but there's extras in there. Um, when you add them all up, um, what people like the SESI say around costs is, is true uh, in our experience. This is the Chartered Surveyor Society. Correct. Uh, they, they would be they would be on the money. They're based on tendered amounts. We see what tenders are are happening in the market ourselves through our consultants on on our jobs, and um, the idea that there's some cheaper way to to do it it just just isn't doesn't doesn't hold water in our view. We're in the market at the moment, and I can tell you we we value engineer the hell out of our schemes to make sure that we get good value for money, and uh, you know you're always going to be in and around market prices. What about the role of the state, though, in driving up prices, with things like councils putting levies on sites and even things like VAT? Could the state maybe reduce those costs? Yeah, VAT um, often gets targeted. Um, the thing you would have to be careful about with VAT, and this is a policy matter for the Department of Finance or the government, but the thing that the argument around not reducing VAT has been that, well, if you just reduce VAT, the person can still pay what they can pay for the house or they can pay for the rent. And that won't necessarily translate into reduced price for the for the end user. So it'll just be sucked up either into land values or profit for the developer, which is not what we're trying to target. Uh, so that's one argument. Now, 
it could be possible that where you have a cap on prices, effectively, say for instance with cost rental, that that benefit would be passed on. Because we have to pay VAT on our input costs and pass them on to the renter. However, it's not that simple for the government. There's pretty strict EU rules around this. Uh, the EU budget is funded through VAT receipts in part. And uh, it's always quite difficult to get derogations away from that. So the rules aren't well understood. Uh, levies, I mean, yeah, sure, you could say, look, we're not going to charge levies, but someone has to pay for the services that they fund. So that's going to come back through taxation in, in some other way. Uh, it's just, is it from the left pocket or the right? So there's no easy answer on it. Okay, our apartment block sizes, because you're already now, I think it's in the Denor St. Teresa's Gardens area, you're looking at building an apartment block, how high? It's 15 storeys, which we've reduced on consultation with the community to from 22. Even 15 is quite high. Why do you believe in high-rise apartments? Because again, there's a generation listening to this who probably won't remember the Ballymun flats, which were the initial Irish experiment in high-rise apartment accommodation, flat accommodation, and it was regarded as not working and been a social problem. Why do you think 15 stories or even your original application of 22 would work? Yeah, the Ballymun experience uh, is is an interesting one from the country. Um, when you when you look into that and you look back at some of the old videos of the the National Building Agency that that produced those, it's quite innovative in terms of the structures. I think where Ballymun fell down over time was around the social services that were inadequate for the for the area and that that weren't provided. So it wasn't necessarily that the tall structures themselves and tall structures successfully exist in many cities and countries. Uh, it was more. Um, because it's so symbolic, I guess, the height out in, in, in Ballymun, um, that kind of received, it was a bit of a lightning rod for the blame for some of the social issues that were experienced out there. But a lot of uh, social policy experts would say that, you know, it was the, the fact that there was, wasn't enough social immunity out there that, that was at the root of that. The actual apartments themselves apparently were very well built, weren't they? Yeah, and they were, they were innovative. They were kind of a lot of off-site fabrication and things like that that we're still talking about today that haven't got to the bottom of today uh, as well. So so they were. Um, but um, so I, I wouldn't say height has become a bit of a lightning rod for, for is conflated almost with, with, with that. Uh, but yeah, we seem to have a fear of height sometimes. And look, the reality is we, we essentially have to, uh, we have to deliver by consent of the community, because if we if we if we don't, uh, we won't get the support. And I'll get to the consent in a second. But aesthetically, do apartment blocks of fifteen or twenty stories or whatever work in areas where all the other houses are literally your two-story houses? Can you really transplant or put large apartment blocks into such situations? I, I think, in my own view. Um, where it makes sense where you have a Georgian city core like we do in Dublin, that you may not have a 25-storey structure right beside that. I think development can be done quite sympathetically if you look at the new ESB headquarters uh, down near Fitzwilliam Square. It's been done quite sympathetically uh, with the surrounding uh, uh, buildings. But I don't think that applies universally. Where you don't have necessarily heritage or buildings of architectural merit or areas of such merit, 
and they have become core city locations, I do think height makes sense. And I guess we have to ask ourselves the question, with all of the extra people coming into this country, where are we going to put them over the next 10, 20 and 30 years? And it can't continue the way it has been. So height has to be part of the solution. And I don't think it's all necessarily a bad thing aesthetically. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing socially. And I think we we will have to get to grips with that because while we listened to the community uh, on the Donor project and we took down the heights and we listened to the community in Dundrum Central Mental Hospital, we reduced them from 14 down to seven there in our application for that one. Um, The reality is we've lost homes as a result of that, that we need. So that's that's the trade-off. But, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky one. How difficult is it to persuade local areas of the requirement for new accommodation and particularly at height? It is difficult um, sometimes um, when you, and I have a sympathy for it, when you have very significant development about to happen right beside you or in your immediate area, it's going to affect you in a number of ways with traffic, with increased pressure on infrastructure that can sometimes be already pressurized um it affects people's lives it profoundly in some ways but that's why we do a lot of consultation i think we're honor bound to do that as a state body and to be honest with you it makes total sense uh, you need to listen to people and people want to be heard that that's half the battle and then when you can do things like show them that you've made a difference that you built say in Dundrum we've gone with shorter structures at the edges to make a smoother transition over to the higher ones even the seven stories in the in the middle uh, but the the issue I think with that is that as someone described it to me it's as if you had the Aviva Stadium you sold 50,000 season tickets for 10 years and no one else can buy a ticket now and it's the voice of the people that don't yet live there and that could live there in an affordable way, I think those are the ones that you need to, we need to work harder to, to bring forward and to bring into the mix because that, that doesn't exist at the moment. So what do you make then of councillors who often sort of jump on the bandwagon in relation to the more active and vocal people in an area like that who are objecting and then who keep saying that they want more housing but they just don't want it where their constituents live? But I think councillors... A job of the councillor is to to represent their constituents. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily to represent their future constituents because they don't know who the, those will be. Um, but that but that's their role, and, and I understand that, and they have to advocate for it. Most councillors I know also understand the need for development. They they make the development plans, and they approve them in the in their own areas, and will permit development by way of zoning and other things. Uh, through those development plans so so there's there's a balance uh, there um, but sometimes you know I think we, we have to think that there are vo- vocal people that, that that speak up about these and does it necessarily represent everyone if you've if you've a residence association that not in all cases but sometimes can be a few vocal people does it really represent the views of the 150 people that might live in the road or in the area you know we have to ask that that question and um, so really really I think trying to seek more balance in the discourse on this is is, is critically important and uh, particularly from those that we're trying to provide for
mentioned figures, this projections that our population in Ireland over the next 30 years could increase by, what is it, up to 2 million people. Yeah. Where are they all going to live? Well, that's, that's the thing. And that's why I think we had the national planning framework in, in 2018 that the, all those brownfield sites, which are, I might add, quite difficult to remediate and bring forward. But that's why we had that, that aspiration to build 50% of our, our new development in, in those areas. Uh, to to maximise the use of the dart and the the roads that we already have and the the train lines that we have and that we don't condemn people to these massive commutes to spending two hours two and a half hours in a car, so that's not good for anyone. Uh, so where are they going to go? Part of it is higher buildings. That's that's for sure. And it, density doesn't always mean height either. I think we can look at some of the some of the guidelines to look at how we arrange development on sites, uh, but. One thing's for sure, it is definitely going to involve more density. It's definitely going to involve trying to look at those brownfield sites. How do we get those into play, which is the other main And I'll get to those game. brownfield sites in a moment, but I don't want this to seem just Dublin-focused because you, you've even spoken, haven't you, about height in places like Galway. How high? Again, the, the aspiration is to grow those cities quite significantly because, and like, a, I'm, a, I'm a Dubliner, and quite often you get this kind of almost uh, GAA style uh, uh, kind of um, competitiveness amongst the cities and people complain that there's too much emphasis on Dublin but as a Dubliner I totally agree with that because there's too much pressure on the city I think actually the big opportunities if you look at them are in Cork uh, Limerick and Galway and and Waterford I I might add and um, so I think Dublin's been, because it's more economically viable and economically attractive for developers, um, I think a lot of the development has been done uh, in, in Dublin. To to degree, there's still many opportunities in terms of infill development. But if you look at the likes of Cork, where you have Tivoli Docks, which has been signalled for transfer to the LDA, um, you have the Cork Docks itself, which is kind of legacy industrial port area. Which people have been talking about for 20 years for the potential yeah. and nothing or little has no, been done. Nothing has happened, but, you know, and, and I, I agree with you. Now, the government has committed a big chunk of money to infrastructure, new bridges and flood defences down there, which will hopefully change that. But I think uh, we, we're often in the habit of, of beating up on ourselves in Ireland a bit and we look overseas for examples of how things are done well. But we could look very close, for examples of what is possible down in Cork Docks and other areas, like uh, the uh, the uh, Docklands area of Dublin and the IFSC before it, where we said, let's draw a line around this area. We're going to give that a planning scheme, and here's what can be developed there. We're going to invest the money in the infrastructure to bring it forward. And they ultimately got delivered. And you know, you could argue, sure, you know, the heights in the Docklands, they're a bit mono height and not that interesting but the reality is they got developed and there are people living there and there are, there are employers that have set up jobs there and set up uh, um, operations there so they're successes and I think if we look at those uh, that's what we should be looking to for the likes of Cork and uh, Limerick as well um, I mean the, the opportunities in in Limerick are, are similarly huge. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because um, this is something I've spoken to John Moran about previously, uh, the Colbert train station area. 
Uh, Limerick City Centre, some fantastic old Georgian buildings as well, which were renovated, but it's a city which needs a bit of love. What can you do for it, for example, around the train station? Is this going to be one of your centrepiece developments for the LDA? It is. So there's two things the LDA is doing. It's delivering affordable housing in the short term. So that's a zero to five year. And from, say, year five and onwards, the core reason why the LDA was set up is to look at these legacy areas around our cities, like Colbert, which has been kind of you know under our noses for forever. There's 50 hectares of state land in the city centre of Limerick, our third city, that hasn't moved forward and uh, and should do, right on the train station. And that 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 second piece, that kind of longer term but very important land assembly, the the likes of the bring the success of the Docklands of Dublin that ultimately got delivered, that's what the LDA is, is really here for. And I think when you look back in the LDA in 25 years' time and what did it achieve, hopefully, yes, we'd have done a good bit on the affordable housing piece, but the longer term is the likes of Limerick Colbert that will have been brought forward over, the, over that period of time. And um, it does need love down there, there's no question about it, but... What it's about is we've brought together all the lands down there, 50 hectares, and we've created a master plan. We spoke to the community. We, we did a thing called a design review. So this is like our blueprint for our approach in these areas, and we've others that I'll talk on. But uh, we did a design review, which is blue sky thinking. We now have a master plan, which is buildings on a page, and to show the community exactly how this is uh, going to look. Um, the key thing is that one thing we've heard in Limerick all the time is we don't need lovely new plans drawn up and uh, written down in a nice brochure and then that's where they sit and they go nowhere. So the key thing for the LDA to prove concept down there is to bring forward planning applications and to build them out. So we'll appoint design architects for a certain portion of those lands later on this year, get a planning application in next year and hopefully start building out on those because I think once you start to to uh, some of this some of the situations that we funded in 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 Nama, um, there, there was a term called above, but you had to be above ground to attract an occupier, and then it became oh well, it's above hoarding, and then you'll attract your occupier. And I think it's the same thing down in Limerick Colberts. It's, it's making that confidence jump to show occupiers that. This is going to happen. So then, and how many you know, units for housing do you reckon you could get there? But it'd be a mixed-use development. We think around two and a half thousand uh, residential units, and to be supporting uh, office, amenity, space, uh, public uh, space as well. But but I think the key thing for that area to work is to show that there's it's competitive by showing that there's affordable housing here and it's coming, and to provide the space as well for workers to. Operate out of so you can say to the Facebooks or the Stripes of this world, don't put your next thousand employees in San Francisco or in Dublin. even Dublin. Put them in Limerick. We're already building the affordable housing. They they can live there. Commit to the office, and we can make that happen too. And then you have good quality jobs, people spending money in the cafes and restaurants of the area, and the whole area lifts as a result and provides opportunities for. The surrounding areas too, which have been the scene of big social deprivation. So, so that's the big picture for areas like Limerick, Albert. It just strikes me that a lot of this is long-term 
planning or medium to long term. Some people would say glacial. And it just struck me that countries like China look in the long term all the time. But yet they build very quickly. They put their new housing and infrastructure in place almost immediately. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I've also looked at what you said about Houston Station and that there's this incredible opportunity, given that there's already been significant building at that end of the Liffey as against what's going on down the Docklands. And yet the talk is that it could take 20 to 50 years to develop out. Yeah, there's... um I think the the key to things like this, like if you look at the if you look at the Dublin Docklands, so how long did that take? And bear in mind that we had a the mother of all financial crises and crash crashes in in the middle of it. So it probably took twenty years in in, in total to deliver. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm getting old enough that I can remember quite clearly twenty years ago now at, at this stage, and and it does pass, but. I think it is possible that if you generate a momentum around these areas, that if you if you demonstrate that there's real money behind them and not just plans, because it, it all needs money. I think once you do that, once you get them started, I think that's the key. And to show that it is viable for developers to come in and play a role in that as well. It doesn't have to be just direct development by the state. Uh, but but I, I agree with you. It's it's hard to sell it, to say that this might the Colbert area might take 15, 20 years to, to deliver in total. But if we're on site building affordable houses in three years, I think it does show that it can happen. But then for something like Houston Station, why is it so difficult, you say, to remediate brownfield sites? Um, it it can it depends on the site, but. Um, Often there'd be, like say, say for instance, one of the big areas that we're looking at at the moment to do a kind of the Colbert Mark II, a version of it for Dublin, is the lands around the, the train depot area in Inchicore. And there's ESB lands there, there's OPW lands there as well. Now, because they've been in city centre locations, they've been used over the past 200 years for various things. Uh, often at times when they wouldn't have been as environmentally conscious as we are now. Uh, so around Injacore, uh, there's been a heavy kind of industry with train works, building building of trains uh, over over years. So a lot of fuels and things would seep into the ground. And they have to be dug up and transported and put somewhere else and replaced. And uh, that's the cost issue and that's the time issue that's often associated with those situations, so that that's 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 where that that piece largely comes from. But they're they're not all all the same. Is it also the case that we need to do an awful lot of work in sort of re rejuvenating a lot of what we have? A friend of mine made a strong argument to me a couple of years ago about the location of the National Children's Hospital, which is under construction, nearly finished at present. That it was needed to try and regenerate the entire area to try and get new generations of people living in the area. And it strikes me that the Denor project would feed into that. The housing that you would actually be building might be the type of thing that nurses and other workers in the hospital would want. That Inchicore is not far away, so that when you get around to redoing, the redeveloping down there, that feeds into the regeneration of that entire area. And yet, and this comes back to what I said earlier, Every time things are brought forward for the regeneration of existing areas, we seem to have complaints, objections. You can't do that here. 
Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. Look, I think it's it's in in it is increasing um, as a, as a factor. I think it's it's the done thing. Um, oftentimes to to object to development. Um, I think we need to, you know, people that are responsible for delivering, uh, like ourselves, probably need to make more of an effort into promoting the the, the broader discussion to bring those people in that the be- development's going to benefit. Like there's a there's a movement in um, in the, uh, you know, we're not unique in Ireland for our housing issues, of course, and uh, you know, San Francisco, say for instance, is is a, is a huge area of, of of pressure for for housing, and. Uh, so there's a movement there called uh, uh, Yes in My Backyard, not No in My Backyard. And I often think that something like that would be, uh, to get a movement like that going for, for, the, for the thousands of people that uh, haven't been able to get on the, the ladder of having their own place or renting or, or buying, um, you know, to create some sort of a platform for them might just add balance to that discussion rather than saying no uh, and, and challenge all the time. So that combined with, I just can't emphasize the need for consultation. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it sounds like a, a, you know, a popular kind of thing to say, but it makes total business sense. Uh, because when you listen to people, they feel that they've been heard. That makes a big difference as well. But some way to balance that discussion, maybe we just need that yes in my backyard movement in Dublin as well. Just a few things before we finish off. Budget. You have, what is it, a two and a half billion euro budget. But is that anywhere near enough? We think it's enough for the time being. Um, I think if we manage to deploy two and a half billion into affordable housing over the next few years and to do it in a way that's done properly and get value for money, I think we'd be in a very good space. To go and get more money, is it? Well, we, we would have to, to have to find more money um, if that's the case. This, this is probably around 2025 onwards that we would need additional funding if, if, if we successfully deployed it, which we think we will. Um, but yes, there will need to be more at some point, uh, not, not during the term of this government probably, but the next one perhaps. And the key thing is that that is done because if you, if you look at what has happened with housing delivery in the country, it's been tied to our economic fortunes. So we had a crash in 2009. There was no money spent on housing because we didn't have it. And that's partially why we're in the situation we're in now. And I think to have an entity like the LDA that has the money that's ring-fenced, that's capitalised and can, can build and can develop and deliver through a downturn which we will experience as sure as night follows day at some point in the future and probably get better value then. If you consider the value we could have got if we said, right, we know we don't need that much development in 2010, 2011, 2012, but we know we'll need that for future years. We get great value from contractors at that point in time and we should be filling our boots during downturns when you think about it, but the reality is there's less money around, less money available. Uh, economically from the exchequer at that point in time. So the the concept of ring-fencing significant amounts of money in entities like the LDA for smooth housing delivery, I think, is very important. And allied to budgets, what about personnel? Because it has, from what I'm hearing, 
many of the local authorities don't seem to have enough planners. They don't have enough people available to have meetings with developers. Uh, we have a very slow planning system. You have very slow with judicial reviews. Do you have enough people, budget for enough people? And are you able to pay them well enough to compete with the private sector to attract them in? Yeah, we're, we're okay from a budget perspective on, on the people. Um, attracting enough of them can sometimes be a challenge. We're competing essentially with the private sector uh, for, for these skills, which are in very high demand. And can you pay them the same? Uh, I think as a package, the LDA offers a, a compelling enough proposition to people. So we've got a good throughput of really interesting work to do. Uh, that, that's one thing. The LDA would be a good, stable employer. Um, as I mentioned, we see ourselves definitely playing a role in counter-cyclical development. Uh, so we, we're a good, stable employer, uh, I would say. A lot of the people, this sounds a bit sanctimonious, but a lot of the people that join us, do believe in what we're doing and it's the question i always ask in interviews why are you here why aren't you speaking to x private developer or or y private fund and they do b believe that uh the lda has a big role to play in in solving the issues that we have like you know i i have kids and quite often people look at their own children when they come in the doors and say i i don't know what they're going to do for their housing needs going forward like we're lucky. We, we have houses and we have places to live, and we can we can afford to pay pay for them. I look at my my kids. I can't see that happening as easily for them. That's it's for sure. It's a conversation that's had in this house with my children as yeah, well. That's it, and that's when people come in our doors and sit down at interviews. They say, "Well, that, I, I probably hear that fifty percent of the time with people that come in." And so, yeah, look, everyone needs to get paid for for their job, but. But there's, there's other factors uh, that draw people to the LDA. And look, we, we pay people good salaries. Would they be the, the highest out there? For sure, absolutely not. Uh, but I think as a package, uh, it's, it's interesting to people. And, and ultimately, they're the kind of people we want at the LDA. I, I ask you this because in recent days, we've even seen people leaving the Department of Health taking up jobs in the private sector. I mean, is this something that you would fear? Would it be something that maybe in time you'd even fancy yourself? I, I, I would, for the LDA, I, I would be conscious of it. I'd fear it, all right, that we'd lose people. We haven't experienced it to date. Uh, we haven't had that much attrition. Um, sure, yeah, it's, 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 always, a, it's always a factor um, that we, we lose talent from, from the public sector and that we, we don't want that to happen. I think, uh, personally, and a lot of people I know do feel drawn to the, to the public sector to... I think there's a there's a there's meaningfulness in in every role perhaps, but but I think there's there's a kind of a a common good. There's a there's a public good element to what what you're doing in the public sector as well, whether that be in housing or health or anywhere. Uh, so that that is a factor that I think holds on to people. So hopefully uh, that'll prevail. That's not said as much anymore as it used to be said in previous generations. Yeah. Um, I, I like. I mean, I, I come from a, a public sector background. My father worked for Dublin County Council as it was back then, and then South Dublin County Council. Uh, my my in laws are from a public sector background as well, and you know the the public sector and the civil service was seen as an attractive career option, an attractive place to be. I think it still is. I think it, I think it can be, uh, and I think it can be marketed as such. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, look, it's not good to see fine people like uh, Dr. Glynn leave. Uh, we don't don't want to lose them out of the public sector. We need leaders like that. And I think, yeah, we should do all we can to look at ways to, to hold on to people like that and to attract more in. How did you get into this? Because you're an accountant, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. In a circuitous way, um, Matt. Um, so I uh, joined NAMA uh, shortly after it was established as, as an employee. And, um, and what attracted you to that? Uh, it, I don't know if you remember back to those times there was a. I remember too well back uh, to those times. But there, there was a real sense of, of, uh, there was, a job was needed to be done here for the country. And I worked in a in, in a bank in Bank of Ireland previous to that as a as a lender to businesses, and um, so NAMA was obviously looking for staff with, NAMA owned loans, not properties, so it was, it was essentially a big bank to a degree. And I um, uh, was looking for kind of banking skills. So uh, I thought that that would be quite an interesting proposition. And it sure did turn out to be. Um, so I stayed there for the guts of 10 years, but about eight years, and finished off as the CFO uh, there. Um, but even in NAMA, and I know people criticize it, it, it had a very unpopular job. And it largely did it. It got the money back. The purpose of it was to extinguish any further liabilities for the country, which it did. Uh, but look, I know it's a divisive topic. But, you know, in NAMA, which is part of the wider National Treasury Agency, NTMA, um, it, there was that public service piece. Um, it plugged you into the public service uh, system. Uh, it gave you an overview of what the public service did. It plugged me into planning and housing in particular. And one thing NAMA did around 2015 was to look at its portfolio of loans to say what land is there and can we do anything around housing development? And and we did, and we put a strategy and in place and we lent money to some of those developer borrowers that were in there to build out houses. And uh, there, there was uh, um, quite a lot of housing development arose out of that. And that got me into the whole housing space and then the LDA came up, or the National Regeneration and Development Agency is a bit of a mouthful, but uh, that's what it was originally called, uh, or, or tabled as. And uh, from colleagues in the Department of Housing got in touch and, and uh, asked for help in setting it up. And uh, that was in the very end of 2018. And here we are a few years later, and we're hopefully sticking a shovel in the ground in a few months' time. But given that background that you have in accounting and banking, I mean, how much do you actually now at this stage reckon you understand of the whole mechanics of development and the whole need for planning as well? Yeah, well, I would say, um, how much do I understand? Uh, not enough. Um, my approach with staff in particular is always to hire in people that are better than me, that know more than me. Um, I think perhaps what I can bring to it is... Um, hopefully a, a steady pair of hands. Uh, I think the experience my previous employer gave you a really concentrated view as to what can go wrong and how to protect against it. So hopefully that will help when you're, when you're at the, at the uh, kind of in, in control of large amounts of, of, of state money. Uh, that, that's important as well. But um, yeah, I've got my views, Matt, but uh, there are people that know much more about this than me, so that's why we hired them in. So John, 
And thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us here. And we're sort of at the end now, but it does strike me that you have an awful lot of really useful ambitions for the LDA and it's all well thought out. But the fear that I have speaking to you is that it's almost like throwing a pebble into the pond, that it's only a small part of such a, a solution to such a massive problem. I think in the long term, uh, the bigger projects will, will make a kind of a macro difference. But look at it this way, Matt. So we have affordable housing providers of a very large scale across Europe. And they've been to Ireland and they're saying, how can we get involved here? And they try to understand what is affordable housing, which we didn't have. And they try to understand what's the scope of the market, what's the size of the market, which we can't provide today or yesterday. But I think with the LDA, even if it's to deliver five, six, seven, eight thousand affordable homes or affordable cost rental homes over the next few years, and while you might say that, is that going to shift the dial? Maybe the, in, in terms of pure numerical amounts, not, not as much as we want, but in terms of creating a new affordable homes cost rental industry in the country that becomes the norm, not the exception, not an initiative, it's the norm, that's, that's what's done. That people come in, pension funds come in and invest in it. And uh, so what, what you call the, the cuckoo funds of today, we'll have versions of that coming in to get into affordable homes, which is very well defined and creates a mushroom, mushrooms up as an industry of itself. I think to catalyze that sort of an industry is the strategic objective of the LDA. And I think that's, that's the biggest opportunity with the nearer term development stuff that we're doing now. And I think that can make a macro difference. John, thank you very much for being with us. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.